You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole coming at you here from the hidden realm of Themyscira and I am just one of the hosts here Matthew Rushing and with me as she is almost every single week the one and only Themyscirin that I know personally Christy Morris. Well hello thank you so much for uh, welcoming uh, an Olympian here. <laughs> uh, and what did you score uh, on the the uh, Themyscirian games? Oh, I won. I don't know if you noticed. Ah, ah, of Since, course. Uh, Diana got thrown out. <laughs> well, we are excited to be here. Uh, of course, this week we have a huge brand new movie to talk about with Wonder Woman 84. Uh, and we are definitely excited to dive into that. Before we get there, of course, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, any of the places, make sure you're subscribed. Uh, and of course, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a star rating review. Help the show grow. Uh, the more people that review us, uh, the more the show can grow, the more it makes us ra- raise in the rankings there on Apple Podcasts. So uh, you can also find us on Twitter at The 602 Club. We're on Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. So please do follow us in both places. You can find us online at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And of course, you can be a part of the listeners only discussion group and talk about all of the shows that we're doing here on the network um, under the Babel Conference, which is you can find by searching for the Babel Conference there on Facebook. Huge thank you. Uh, last show of the year, we want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers. Again, uh, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah for supporting us each and every year uh, that they have been. And it's been a long time now that they've been supporting the network and this show to make sure it keeps coming to you. And as we approach 2021, we could definitely use your support to make sure that uh, these shows keep coming to you. It is definitely expensive uh, to do this, and um, we could really use your help. Go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, see how uh, you can be part of our team. Every little bit helps. Every little contribution helps. Uh, but again, um, as we head into 2020, uh, if you like the network and what we do, uh, really encourage you to please go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and help us out. So... Um, Christy, uh, you know, there's there's just so much really to talk in uh, about with this movie. So I feel like it's probably a good idea for us to just dive in. And the movie starts off with us uh, returning to Themyscira. And so I just wanted to know first just what you thought about that I, as an idea to start the movie. And then, of course, you know, uh, there's some some pretty big setup, I think, in the themes for the film that this does. So what did you think uh, and how did you feel about that whole sequence being our reintroduction to the world of Wonder Woman? I thought it was a good jumping off point because obviously we began there in the first movie. I, I think that it's a good reminder since it's been a while since the, the first film came out 
to kind of start over with um, just a reminder of what Diana's upbringing was like um, and also showing her growth as a person or in this situation, I guess, something that she still hasn't learned, um, which is about, you know, the value of the truth and what it means to hold the lasso of truth and things like that. And um, I was a bit concerned when they first show her in the competition because I thought that it was going to go the route of, and she comes in and beats everyone, even though she's a little girl and they're all grown women. Uh, So I was kind of relieved that they actually had her learn from it and not win um, to be shown that, you know, sometimes mistakes happen, but you can't take shortcuts and lie and then still win because that's not really winning. And that you would not understand those things yet either when you're a child. So I thought that that was a really good way to show that and in a way that would make sense to anyone. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really liked the sequence. It was just, it was really fun, obviously, to to get a taste of what uh, Themyscirian life is like, you know, the training that they go through to, you know, be these great warriors that they are. Um, and I, I'm like you, I appreciated that, you know, Diana doesn't win um, and that there is a lesson to be learned here, like you said, that she... And it's it's a it's a multifaceted lesson in the sense, you know, the first one, obviously, um, is that she's reminded by Antiope that, you know, nothing good is born from lies. And, you know, she did not finish the race as intended. She didn't go the long way. She cheated because she got knocked off her horse because she wasn't paying attention to what she was doing. Um, And. Uh, that idea of nothing is good is born from lies and and the idea that you can't take shortcuts really play out into the rest of the film. So the beginning here in Themyscira is really about setting the stage for the things that Diana is finally, like, obviously we, this point in life, like, you know, it's, what, a hundred years later, you know, and Diana still is going to have to finally put these lessons into practice in a way that truly tests whether or not she's going to uh, choose the correct path or if she's going to choose the easy path. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think um, to me, you know, it, it, immediately they start off with the lesson and then the rest, they, so they tell you what the lesson is and then the rest of the movie is going to hopefully, as we talk through it, is going to be about um, watching that lesson actually play out and juxtaposing different people uh, either learning that lesson or not learning that lesson. And I just really like that because, you know, when you kind of look at uh, Diana there, you know, she's told that the truth of the matter is is that you did not finish the race as intended. You cheated. You know, you took a shortcut and that um, really we, we come to see throughout the rest of the movie. But even here is that um, when you look at and Antiope even does this, she says, look at our greatest warrior. You know, they she did not take the easy way. She worked um, very diligently, patiently, you know, on um, honing her craft and becoming the best warrior. And what does that mean? It means. You know, we uh, need experience 
like experience in life is what teaches us, right? And 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 um, the long way is a good teacher because nothing can play replace well earned experience. And so, I really thought, you know, obviously this movie starts off immediately with the lessons that it's kind of trying to go for, and it gives us one example of what that is, and the rest of the movie is then about trying to kind of play that out. So, um. But I think you made a really good point was, you know, it's been a few years since we've been with Wonder Woman just by herself. Obviously, we had Justice League come out, um, but this is our our first return to just her as a solo character and her life and everything. And so, you know, kind of being reminded, like you said, of being back here and, and what her life was like um, and, uh, you know, just the experience she had there, I think is a good way to kind of start the, the movie to kind of ease you back into this whole thing. Because, you know, not only that, the last time, uh, that we saw Wonder Woman on her own was also at the end of, you know, World War One. So a ton mm-hmm. of time has passed <laughs> since then. And so, <laughs> you know, this kind of, again, it gives a good way to start off thematically, but I think it's just a good way to reintroduce us back into the world of Wonder Woman, like you said, where she came from. And now we're going to uh, spend the rest of the movie where she is in this time period. Because obviously, too, you know, we all know we, we've seen her past this time period. So in some ways, this is also going to be a movie about kind of filling in a part of her story since there's so long between this and the next time that she would show up chronologically, which is Batman v Superman. So, you know, this kind of helps fill in some of those gaps. What was her life like? You know, um, what was she learning? Uh, you know, it, it, all of that kind of stuff. So I think you're, you know, this just created a really fun beginning to the film, but it also created a good thematic beginning to the film as well. And, it, you know, too, I want to, piggyback on that and say i i liked that even though after that point in the movie it's been set in 1984 they don't lean into too much the 80s pop culture aspect of that era in our actual history in this movie you know what i mean like they really could have gone heavy with the traditional 80s music or, um, you know, with showing some more things in pop culture that were going on in the 80s in the movie, but they didn't. They went instead with just big picture and stuck to the the elements that they're trying to teach rather than leaning into the culture of the 80s. Yeah, I, I honestly tend to agree with you. I've seen some places where people have talked about that idea, and, and I am on your side in that i i don't think that this just is a a wall-to-wall cliche of 80s cliches you know um Mm. and i think you know we'll talk a little bit later i think there's some reasons why they kind of pull out these ideas um with being set in 1984 uh but i think one of the things that this allows them to do is set a time period that is obviously again you're filling in her backstory from this to all the way to BVS. So there's some lessons she needs to learn and it helps make some connections to, to like, you know, we know that she wasn't really out there as a big superhero in the sense that like everybody knows her name and everything. Mm-hmm. This allows you to tell a story in that time period where it's easier for her to go unnoticed. You know, not everybody has a cell phone camera and, you know, it's much easier for her to have anonymity 
uh, because, you know, yes, there are like CTTV type of cameras in a, um, uh, like a mall and stuff, but those are easy to take out. And again, not everybody has a cell phone camera where they can just capture a uh, Wonder Woman doing whatever she's doing. So that is also a good place to set this. But, you know, I think it's uh, another one is it's kind of a fun era to be able to put um, Steve into. So, you know, the first movie was all about Diana um, being the fish out of water. And in this movie, we reverse that. You know, Steve is, uh, uh, he's the fish out of water. You know, he's mm-hmm. the one who's experiencing life for, you know, the first time in a way that completely blows his mind that he, you know. So we get to experience the life of that time period and the time that Diana is in through him, you know. And in, and in many ways, you know, again, it is a complete reversal of their, you know, places uh, in in the first movie, you know, um, and I, I think that's one of the things that kind of makes it fun as well. Um, you know, we play into some of the 80s stuff where they're trying on clothes and everything. And, you know, he keeps yeah. coming out in different outfits. So we we have some fun with it. Right. Um, but it um, yeah, it, it kind of I think it, it just creates a fun time period to be in and kind of a, a fun uh, you know, covering for the rest of the movie. Honestly, this is a movie that you could have probably set in any time period, you know, in the sense that like you could have found a way to make this a, a, a movie um, now. Uh, and you could have done that, but you know, they choose this time period. And I, I do think, you know, um, I, I, I was thinking of some, some reasons specifically kind of like it being called 1984 and, uh, talk about it a little bit later, but you know, there's some there's some ideas of why I think they chose this time period, right? Other than it being just a very strong backdrop to use for any movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, it, it's it's really interesting, obviously. Um, and and something I don't want to talk to it wasn't on the outline, but you know, one of the things that we get here is kind of a connection with um. You know, in Batman v Superman, we we learn that Wonder Woman really hasn't been out there as a hero in the sense that, like, everybody knows her name. You know, everybody knows when Wonder Woman shows up. You know, she's she's basically been staying. She's been doing things, but she's doing her best to stay hidden. So she becomes like a, you know... um, a myth to people, you know, she becomes an urban legend of this person who kind of swoops in and like, nobody's really sure what happened, you know? Um, and how did you feel about that? Did that, did that work for you? Especially when we kind of think about the continuity of the films that they have so far? Yeah, that works for me completely because anything, at least that I have seen of Wonder Woman as a character in general, she's never really been the one that sought the spotlight. So I like that they kept that element of it of, you know, she cares about doing good and about, you know, the world being a better place rather than notoriety for herself. So I I thought that that was a good way to handle it, but then also, um, cute for the movie as well to have her then you know be able to swoop in and fix things but not be jumping out in front of the cameras trying to get the attention you know that she's got this whole other life sort of a you know going back to superman clark kent (laughs) well and i mean what what's fascinating to think about is that you know uh, like wonder woman and superman are very much in the same boat in the sense that they don't age like normal human beings do 
right? I mean, she's a demigod, so she will legitimately probably live for who knows, you know? Um, right. She could live for hundreds of years, thousands of years, who knows, right? So, and like Superman, who's constantly recharged by the sun, you know, and renewed by the sun, who knows how long he could live? So, you know, you you what is interesting here is to actually kind of play with that a little bit about the idea of like you noticed in the in the last movie in Wonder Woman, um, we saw her being based out of Paris, um, and um, so and in and in that, um, that movie begins with her being in Paris after the events of BVS, so. Here we see her in her more classic era and area. In the comics, she's very much uh, a part of Washington D.C. most of the time uh, in the comics. Um, so we'll we see now that she moved. She's moved from D.C. to the city of love at some point in those twenty years. So um, it makes sense for for her that she's somebody who would have to have moved. Unless she mm-hmm. wants people to know who you are, who she is, because she doesn't age, you know. So you right. can only get away with that for so long till people realize, wait, you look exactly like you did twenty years ago. <laughs> What's up with you? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting when you think about that, like uh, how that I think plays in really well with just the connections um, and, and the kind of continuity and them thinking about, I mean, I, you know, they had to have thought about that. Plus again, her first movie plays the fact that she lives in Paris at that point. Well, this gives us an opportunity to play with in the comics that she is, is based in Washington DC in the comics. And so this allows us to do that without messing up any of the continuity. So setting it in the past, and the 80s gives us that opportunity with no issues. So, yeah, that's that's really fun. So, okay. One of the big contentions that I've seen just perusing social media and stuff about the film is this idea of granting wishes and this stone. Um, this, this stone. Uh, and so uh, I just first wanted to kind of talk about uh, the rules of the stone as we know it from the film and um, what we know is that it grants wishes, but it also takes something. Not only um, does does it take something, but it, it takes something that you value in possession, you most value in possession. That's how they determ- uh, determine this. And it's something mm-hmm. that's you know been around for at least 4,000 years in various places around the world. Like uh, I, I, I specifically looked up all the places and it like... Yeah, it starts four thousand years ago, and and the last place it ends up was the with the Mayans, and all the places that it pops up, the civilizations end up collapsing. Um, and this apparently comes from the God of Lies with Dolos, or there's many other names. Um, and the way Steve describes it, which is really interesting, is is from he calls it the monkey's paw, which is actually an old short story. Um, and, um, I thought that that was really interesting that they kind of really tie this to something that Steve would have known because the monkey's paw came out at, um, during the 1800s as a story. So this is something Steve would have been very familiar with because it was also turned into like a play. It was a short story you would have read and those kind of things. So, um, that part to me was really interesting. And I, I, the story here itself 
basically kind of plays out this idea of, you know, uh, they found this like mummified monkey's paw and it can grant you three wishes, but the consequences of getting those wishes are really hellish because you're tampering with fate. And, um, so, um, these characters need money to pay off their last mortgage. They ask for the money and then, uh, their, uh, son dies, um, in the story of the monkey's paw. Yeah. And so, um, and because of the death that happens, which happens at work, they're paid 2,000 pounds, which is what they need for their last mortgage. Um, and um, the mother, mad with grief, wants to use the paw to bring their son back. And so she wishes for that. And a few hours later, because the cemetery is about two miles away, there's a knock at their door. And Mr. White is terrified that whatever this thing is at their door is um, is going to be, you know, the mutilated remains of his son, that it won't really be his son. And so he makes the third wish and the knocking stops. So that's kind of the overview of, of like where they're getting this idea of what they're using. So first, I just want to ask, with all of that said, like, how did you feel about this stone that they use in the movie and and did it make sense to you did it work for you were there any inconsistencies that you found or you thought like didn't work i i think that their introduction of it was really good uh I, you know we've all been familiar with similar kinds of stories um and actually this was one of my favorite um stories in general the monkey's paw because you know that classic be careful what you wish for kind of message and that makes sense with them trying to do this with this stone uh the one inconsistency i saw that may maybe you felt as well or anyone else out there maybe saw was uh when pedro pascal actually um his character wishes to be the wish stone that kind of made sense to me, or at least I could suspend my disbelief to go along with it. But then when he says that he can get what he wants in return for people's wishes, it they started to lose me a little bit because it made sense that the stone might take something of value from the wisher, but the stone itself wouldn't have had a particular desire of something it wanted aside from that. So it didn't really make sense to me about how he would then be able to take good health, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, my rationale behind that, and I think that's a great question because it's something I was thinking about too. You know, so the stone as just the stone, it takes what you most value. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so since he's the stone himself, he's the one granting wishes. Um, he takes, he's able to then take what he wants from them as payment. Like the, the thing that is the juxtaposition you, you, I grant you this wish, but I'm going to take something you value. And so you notice he's always taking something that that person values. Like he takes that, uh, oil tycoons, um, security force. So, to me, it kind of made sense that once he became the stone, the way it works is that it 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 requires a a payment basically 
you get your wish, but it requires something from you. Um, and that now that it's part of a sentient being, it could be whatever the person exactly, decides they want. Exactly. So that's how I took it. So, um, but I think you, I mean, you do raise a good question because it, it is something they don't leave some of this stuff nebulous. And so I think that's really why I wanted to talk through all of this stuff um, to see if we could make sense of it. And I think that, again, it to me, that made sense that once he's the stone, he can require basically whatever penance he requires, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or, or that he wants as as the payment, basically, for granting the wish. Um, so, well, and I guess the other part, uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 please. uh, This is great. Uh, so I was curious too, what you thought about him having to physically or not physically touch people in order to have the exchange happen, because it, it made sense initially to me as well with, they had to be holding the wish stone to make their wish and then have it happen. But he wasn't technically touching people when they were broadcasting his face on screens. So it, did that kind of fall apart for you? I I mean, it didn't fall apart too much. I mean, this is where it like gets real comic booky, you know, right? Like as, you know, the Reagan wannabe is is telling him, you know, that the particles can reach, you know, so like. Okay, I'll go with again. It's it's a magic. It's a comic book movie, you know. So, I there are look there are points to the logic to which you know I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get upset about that don't make complete sense because again it's a comic book movie. Um, and I need to just be able to check some of my brain at the door in the sense that like there are going to be some things that are just completely not possible. So, yeah. But no, I I mean yeah it. To try and find a way to do that, I mean, you know, they're tying into the whole idea of, like, Star Wars, the missile mm-hmm. defense program and, and uh, everything uh, at that point, um, the laser defense space program uh, from the 80s. So, and that was a, a little, like, tongue-in-cheek kind of moment. So, it didn't bother me too much that that was the case. Um, you know, I I think it was interesting, too, because, uh, you, you know, you see then that the there are... There are two people that make wishes. There are three people that make wishes before uh, he becomes the stone. Um, so that's really interesting. I mean, you have Diana who made the wish, and then uh, you had the guy who asked for coffee. <laughs> he got his wish, uh, oh, and then of course you have Barbara who makes her 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 original wish, which is you know her original wish is to be um, like Diana smart strong sexy popular mm-hmm. basically um so you you that and that i think will play into you know later on in the movie uh and so um i i think the one of the really big things that i i have then with this movie and i've heard a lot of people be very frustrated with this whole thing is that the way steve comes back the way that they bring Steve back and the fact that he's in someone else's body instead of uh, just being brought back to life. So first, I just wanted to ask you about that. Do you think they should have just brought Steve back to life as in, boom, his body is back as well as his soul? Or do you like the way that they play it here in the movie? And did it make sense to you that this is the way it would work? 
I think that if you look at it from the standpoint of bringing back Steve's body, technically he would have been sort of like the son in the story of, you know, like a zombie because unless they like brought him back in uh, or forward in time, um, his body would not be the same anymore. So I wouldn't have done it that way. I think that the way that they've handled it um, is actually a good way to do it. I think it just could have been explained better uh, because initially when we were watching and saw this strange guy chasing after Diana at a party and then they show like it's Steve. It was really off putting because you're going, but why though? You know, like there was no explanation as to how it would end up that way until later. Um, And no one else was handled that way. Um, Maybe if, if they had established that that could happen in some other way, like, another person in the office wishing for a loved one to be brought back or something. Um, I think just more explanation would have helped. Yeah. One of the things I thought, and, and a friend of mine on, uh, on Twitter and I were talking about this and he had an issue with it. And, um, you know, he mentioned the fact that, you know, you can blink walls in and out of existence. You know, you can, um, (laughs) missiles can, appear and disappear and all these things you know so all that can happen so you can't just bring like somebody back from the dead you know to me uh, my immediate thought when this happened was the idea uh that i know from like fairy stories bringing somebody back from the dead is never cut and dry you can't just pop somebody back into existence in any fairy story right in (laughs) aladdin you know the genie's like I can't bring anybody back from the dead. It's not a pretty sight. I don't like doing that. You know, like it's not like you said, it's not a pretty thing to bring somebody back from the dead, you know? Um, And uh, I also thought of like Harry Potter, the resurrection stone. It brings somebody back sort of, it brings back a part of them, a, a, a ghost of them, basically a, a almost a memory of them and so to me the fact that you can't just that even magically even the god of lies it's not just it, you can't just pull somebody back from the dead you know and in greek mythology you know you can pull a soul back but it never i mean again we're, you know to me all of this kind of seemed to play very well with all the type of stories that we're kind of basing this off of. And Mm -hmm. I, I also think that, and I don't know if you thought about this, but like, so if Steve literally came back from the dead, like his body and his soul are back, if she has to give up that wish, she's basically killing Steve. Mm -hmm. Do you want Diana to literally have to kill Steve again? So he dies twice. Like, I don't think that we necessarily want that to be the storyline, but we do want Diana to have to learn the lesson of giving something up, right? And so I think this is the best way, honestly, to do the story because she, I mean, legitimately, if she unwishes Steve being back, she killed him again. And she's responsible for his death at this point. So I don't think we really want that to be the story for Wonder Woman, if you ask me. And then, too, in doing it this way, for me, also worked because then they're really showing how 
anytime that you lose a loved one that you have to move on or you lose yourself, mm-hmm. you know, that she's pausing the rest of her life, her purpose as Wonder Woman and everything just to be able to have Steve back. Yep. And he has to tell her again, this is not the way it's supposed yep. to be. Well, you have to move on. And hasn't she done that? Hasn't she? Yeah. She talked about that with Steve, right? When he was challenging her and she's like, this is the only thing I want, you know, and she even tells uh, Barbara, I, I don't go out. I don't, I don't see people. She lives this very cloistered life. She lives a very solitary life. And she's like you said, she's put her entire life on hold because she doesn't know how to move forward. And isn't that part of the lesson that she's still learning about Steve's death? You know, um, so I I heartily agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. I think that it plays into this idea of the truth. You know, the truth of the matter is, she says, she even she says specifically to um, Lord, she says she never wanted anything more, but he's gone, and that's the truth. Like the truth of the matter is, is you cannot bring somebody back from the dead. The truth of the right. matter is, is that he is dead. And so she's, I, I love how Steve tells, you know, you don't have to say goodbye. I'm already gone. I was never really here. Um, and so Steve coming back like this kind of connects with that first m- lesson in the movie about not cheating. You can't cheat things in life. You know, um, experience, um, and this is kind of the ultimate f- form of that, you know, but in the end, if you bring Steve back, he's not really back. It's hollow because it's only a part of him. That's It's just like this piece of him that's back. It's not the full Steve. Even though she only sees what she wants to see, it's not It's not really real, you know? Like, um, And it kind of it reminds me in some ways that, like, you know, in Star Trek V where Kirk says that he needs his pain. Like, Diana needs this pain, the loss of Steve helps change her in the same way that like the loss of his parents changes Bruce. And as mm-hmm. much as she'd like to have Steve back, he's already gone. Um, and so to me, it makes it a much stronger lesson this way. Um, and I think it also helps us connect. Like when I think about this in reference to Batman v Superman and the relationship then that they're also going to have um, Bruce and her in justice league i think she feels that connection to him because they've both had to learn very hard lessons from losing people that they've loved you know um but still coming together even when it's difficult you know bruce lost his parents he lost robin she's lost steve she's also lost countless of other people who that she's known have died because she's outlived them you know and so i think learning this lesson that ex- that only experience can teach her, um, and Steve coming back like this makes perfect sense to me, um, and I think it really works. And on top of that, I would say I I believe I kind of see Diana um, in this. She's losing not only her powers, but I think she's also learning. She's also losing some of the things that make her who she is, which. She's, she kind of starts to lose a little bit of her love and compassion. She doesn't really seem to care about the dude whose Steve's body 
uh, has overtaken, you know, Steve has overtaken his body. But she also is willing, basically, for the longest time in this movie, to sacrifice the entire world just to have the one thing that she really wants. You know, so it's oh, a yeah. crisis. It's a it's a crisis of conscience here. You know. Yeah, I, I think that that's the biggest thing we see in the whole movie is that it's Diana learning again that lesson that you and I have mentioned a lot on this show is the selfishness versus selflessness. And that even though she generally does know the difference between right and wrong and seeks the truth and wants the world to be a better place, that in this moment she becomes selfish again and is desperately hanging on to Steve so hard that she is, like you're saying, willing to give up everything else that she usually stood for and has to finally realize that that's not the right way. And I wanted to add, too, that it's not what Steve would have wanted, that he gave his life to save everyone. And to to make sure that she could save everyone. Right. And so he wanted to go when he did. And um, there's only honor in that and that she needs to keep that in mind when she, you know, thought about bringing Steve back and stuff that he wouldn't have wanted it that way. And I mean, and he even tells her that, you know, like I, I did what I did so that you could save the world. Mm -hmm. And basically he's like, I'll always love you, but I'm already gone. And again, I think that lesson is so much stronger because it helps reinforce the idea of that, you know, here that what she's holding on to isn't really real. It's, but we do that so often where we try to hold on to things that aren't really the truth of the matter because they quote unquote make us feel better or we think they do. But it really reminded me of, you know, in the Bible, Jesus says, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And that's kind of what Diana is learning in this. Like she, she yeah. is on the precipice of, of gaining the whole world, which to her is Steve, Right. And yet she's willing to forfeit her entire soul, which is the very thing that she has been, which is the the character that has stood for love, you know, and mm-hmm. sacrificial love. And she's about to lose that if she doesn't allow herself to live out that same sacrificial love in the sense that she will sacrifice the thing that she wants most for the good of others. And it's a I again, like to me. Um, I've just seen a lot of complaining about this online, but it creates an incredible thematic element. And I think it's played so beautifully because Gal Gadot kills it in this role, uh, again, as Wonder Woman. And her with Chris Pine, they have such chemistry. And mm-hmm. um, I think she makes you feel every single second of this loss. Um and every single second of the joy of having Steve back, even if it's just for a little while. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, those two together are gold. And I can understand why they wanted to find, you know, some way to bring him back for this film. And I, again, the way they brought him back um, and him being back and then his his leaving the film the way he does, you know, I think it upholds the character of Steve, but I think it helps cement the character of Diana to who she's going to be in the future. Um, 
And I'm really excited, honestly, because, you know, obviously we get to see, you know, she makes that choice in BVS to come and help um, Superman and Batman. And she makes that choice to to expose herself, you know, to a place where people might realize who she is in this mess. Um, mm-hmm. And then we know she chooses to join Bruce, you know, to fight what's going to be coming. Um, and she is kind of, I think, in many ways, playing out the lessons that we see her learn here, which is her life is not meant to be lived in the shadows and in the sense that, like, to not be a part of a group, you know, to not be allow her life to have any meaning beyond her just trying to kind of do some good here, but not actually have any true life for herself, you know, like to live life to the fullest. So anyway, um, yeah, I just, I love all of that. So, um, in the whole wish fulfillment thing, you know, we have Barbara here and, you know, obviously her choice. And so what did you think of, of, her story, obviously, and, you know, of, of Kristen Wiig playing this iconic role uh, from the, the comics of, of Barbara Minerva and, and Cheetah. So for me, she was unfortunately the disappointing part of the movie. And I hate saying that because I've always been such a supporter of Kristen Wiig in particular. Her comedic style is just right up my alley. And I want her to be able to do anything she wants to do. Uh, but I, in this role, I felt like the character needed to be written a little bit differently. And I felt like she also could have done it a little bit more justice. Um, it, in particular, I'll say it bothered me in the scenes with her being attacked at night by the random guy on the sidewalk because it, it didn't really make sense in them trying to explain why he was attacking her. It, it seemed to just kind of shy away from really saying what he was coming after her for. Um, and then he's just suddenly blowing up at her. Um, and then too, later on when she comes back and is getting vengeance on him, it seems then too over the top cruel um, in, in a way that really didn't, make sense for her at that point to be um i just i don't know it, it felt like even just the way that the character was written to have the climactic anger build up it didn't have enough things happen in order to get to that point for her to be that cruel to someone i just felt like overall that max lord was a stronger villain than she was written to be I, I can understand some of that, and and part of the the thing with the both of the villains here is I almost feel as though maybe I, I and I talked to to my wife about this. It's like I almost wish that the movie had one or the other, and not both. Yeah. Um, just because I think it would have helped. Like you could have crafted this story to really it's a more intimate story between. Barbara struggling with wanting to be like Diana, you know, and we have that struggle here. She thinks she knows who Diana is. She thinks she can judge the book by its cover that Diana is popular and wonderful and beautiful and all these things. She thinks she knows what her life is. Um, uh, 
but to quote Ricky Bobby, you know, from Talladega Nights, you want to see what my life is? You know, like Diana's life is not what people thinks on the think on the outside. You know, um, Barbara right. doesn't get that, you know, even with their conversation that they have. Um, so that whole like have and have not thing, I think would have been really interesting to see them struggle with. Um, and so I think you could have written the movie where it was just those two together and it'd be a much more intimate film in that way and not so world spanning. But I, I personally thought Kristen Wiig was fantastic in the movie and I thought she did a really good, Personally, I thought she did a really good job as as this character of Cheetah, and that I liked the turn because I thought what was interesting about that scene where she's beating the crap out of that dude on the sidewalk is she doesn't even realize what she's doing until she's mm. uh, it's brought to her attention by the guy she brought food to, you know, uh, a few days mm. earlier, and. I don't think she realizes her change necessarily until it's too late in her temperament. And then at that point, she's kind of basically pulling an Anakin Skywalker in the sense that she doesn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, she just wants what she wants. And um, she's not willing to give it. She's holding on to it so tightly, she's willing to destroy everything basically to get it. And... I, I mean, I, again, I can see, you know, where you're coming from and I kind of almost wish, like I said, that it, that it had been the case where maybe it was one or the other. Um, but I, I mean, for what we got, I thought it was really interesting and I, this was fascinating to me. So the wish that Lord granted her obviously gets taken back because he is the resurrection. I mean, he's you know, the, the, um, the resurrection stone. Um, <laughs> he's the, he's the, the granting wish stone, right? Mm-hmm. And so once he renounces his wish, all the other wishes he granted are gone. But we don't know if she renounced her wish. We only know that she got taken away the cheetah part of herself, but we don't know is that she's not still as strong as Diana, mm-hmm. which I really like that they leave that ambiguous. And obviously, and, you know, uh, Patty Jenkins already said that was left ambiguous on purpose because I think they've got plans for Cheetah in the future. So that's exciting to me that they're not just going to leave this story here because they are doing a third movie. They've already greenlit the third movie now. Um, so I'm glad to know that we'll continue that story so that it's not just something like, well, we're done with that, you know. Um, so I'm at least glad that that's the case. Yeah. It, and I do think that, you know, like the fight scene was really cool between the two of them and that they actually did make her look good as Cheetah. I just wanted more motivation for her to get to that point of anger of, you know, then all of these other actions she takes making more sense to me. It just felt like it rushed a little to that point for her. Um, yeah. But I still thought, yeah. you know, that once it got to those points, it was interesting and um, looked cool. And then especially having um, her and Max working together. Um, but ultimately, I think the more threatening villain to me with more stakes was Max. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I agree with you um, in that sense. I do feel like, you know, this movie's long and I, uh, one of the knocks I would give it is I do feel like it, it probably needed to be restructured a little bit to allow mm-hmm. some of those motivations to work out more so, uh, especially in that place. Because like you said, Max Lord with Pedro Pascal, you know, um, for him, you know, this is about, I mean, he's the antithesis to the lesson that we got at the beginning, which is, you know, <laughs> um, nothing good is born from lies um, and that you can't take shortcuts because his entire world has been taking shortcuts. He's been trying to find the easy money. And what he's found is that you can't do that. And once he gets the opportunity to do that, he continually just wants more and more and more. And it kind of reminds me almost, you remember in Shazam, they had the sin of gluttony, you know, and like, mm-hmm. that's what he's guilty of is he just, no, nothing is ever going to be enough. And like, if there wasn't a better example in a movie of a character of somebody who, it doesn't matter how much you have, it's never going to be enough. It's him. You know, like he is just the poster child for that. And so I think um, and I really liked that about his character and his character's actually kind of grown on me more. I I saw the movie a couple of times now. And, you know, I think uh, it's it's a strong storyline to see play out. My only criticism of it would be I just wish, you know, he's quite a douchebag, right? But I kind of wish that he had been a little bit more menacing. Like Barbara was actually the more menacing character, I felt like, villain-wise. And he was just kind of like this big buffoon. And I wish that he had had just a slight more menace to him. And, and, And honestly, he's completely different than he is in the comics. Because in the comics, he's able to control people's minds and make them do what he wants, which is super scary and creepy. And like he's one of the worst villains in DC. Uh, comics because of that and in fact uh in comics um diana actually killed him um because of his ability for mind control um you know Mm. so um i just um that's the only thing i would say about him pedro pascal was great he's having a fantastic time he's he's acting his heart out um i just wish he had had just a slight more menace to it I can understand that. I, you know, I, um, he didn't, he never felt menacing to me in that sense. So I do agree with you there. I, I think that the one thing though, that I really loved about him was that he was just always very, um, willing to make a deal, even in the sense of, you know, like you're saying with like gluttony or whatever, but it almost even made you feel like people making the wishes were making a deal with the devil. Because the way that he has that scene with the president of the United States has him holding hands with him, telling him what he wishes for most. It was so creepy to me. And, you know, you're seeing the toll that it's taking on his physical body because I guess we're sort of saying that, you know, he's taking on so much um wish wise and trying to give and maybe not sleeping, not eating, whatever. Um, so it's damaging his body was a really cool way to show that he's 
overdoing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, to the point yeah. of like his eyes are bloodshot, his ear is bleeding and stuff, and he's like, No, 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 I'm fine. Um, and you know, till it finally gets to the point of he realizes he's going to lose the number one thing that mattered to him, and that was his son. Yeah. When yeah. before he took for granted that his son would always be there and he needed to take care of these other things first to make his son proud of him. He never needed to do that. Right. He was just always pushing him aside. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do want to say like the the reason that I can say I did really enjoy watching this movie is because there were two moments that stuck out to me and that I, I even sent you a message and said, I'm bawling my eyes out mm-hmm. crying. And that was when Steve had to leave again because it was so meaningful in a good way. You know, like we were saying that he wouldn't have wanted it this way. It's not the same. It's just a shell of a person when they're being brought back from the dead like that. And that he had he was, you know, never really back anyway. But her finally letting go, that made me cry. And then this was the other part that made me cry. And it was seeing he does decide to renounce everything for his son. Yeah. So I, those two moments for me, like, made the movie. I was just blown away by how powerful those moments were for me personally. So I, I, I looked at my husband and I even said, Pedro is so good. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I I was thinking about that, too, as you were talking. And, and, and one of the things that we see here is um, he's been a character who's never thought about the consequences of his actions. Really? And the consequences of the actions are coming into play in a way that are about to take away the very thing that he cares about. The only thing he kind of cares about in his life. And he realizes how much he cares about it. And part of that, I think is, you know, Diana has the lasso of truth around him at that point. And I think he can finally see the truth because she is speaking the truth. Um, And to Mm. me, this is one of the biggest things about this movie and why I think it's so good because the idea of truth in this movie is fantastic. Diana says to Steve that what, runs her what creates the power for her lasso is not her it's not her truth it's the truth because the truth she says is bigger than all of us which means we can't change the truth regardless of what we want or will like the truth she says should be enough like it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and in the end it will set us free and we have to look to the uh, at the truth of what our wishes are costing us and if they're worth the cost. And to me, it the reason I, I thought it was really interesting is that this movie is is named 1984. Is, you know, the book 1984 is all about Big Brother uh, and the party um, making people believe lies. Whatever it is the party wants you to believe, that's what they, uh, that, that's what they, they, they hold truth and they make truth, they say. And so, like, I think 
that's the thing that I just really like about this and, and the reason I think that it's the movie is placed in 1984 is because it comports with a lot of what Orwell was talking about in his book. Um, and, you know, one of the things he, he says in that is a quote from that book. He says, you know, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. It was their final and most essential command. Like that was the idea that we would, that they would create reality or, you know, here we, Pedro Pascal, he's trying to create his own reality. But this movie is about that. No, truth is immutable, whether you want it to be or not. Steve is dead. He's mm-hmm. not coming back. Right. Diana lost the race because she cheated. You know, um, like these immutable truths, we can't we can't just make reality in our own image. Reality is reality. Truth is what actually comports with reality. And that, to me, for a movie to say that these days is huge. Um, you know, it, it, the fact that the truth is bigger than all of us. It's not something we determine and we can't exchange the truth for a lie. You know? Um, mm-hmm. And so I, to me, I was just blown away by that. And I think, you know, we need more movies like that that are talking about this idea because I think it was beautiful. Um, and it, it really, to me, uh, it really hit me very difficultly um, that we we need to be living in light of the truth, not just a truth we make up for ourselves, which makes it not true. Exactly. Well, and and I think that along those lines too, it was so meaningful because it brings up all of these big points that are experienced across humanity that we all deal with and have to either move on from or let it overcome us, you know, loss or wishing that you had more than you do or, you know, uh, being a different person because you idealize what they're like. You know, these are things that everyone experiences probably at some point in their life and you have to figure out how to let go of and be yourself. And so I really love that it sends this ultimate message of, of the truth and of being yourself and of realizing what you already have rather than constantly wanting more. Because like you were saying, you know, sometimes more is just more. You're going to want and want and want and never be able to fill that up. Yeah. And I mean, like you, I love what you were saying there because this idea of the truth of who you really are, because it's not until the very end of the movie where Max Lord admits to himself the truth of what he is, which he's a loser. He is a liar. He is all of these things. And it, it, you know, they always say that admittance is the first step to recovery. Like you have to admit you're an alcoholic, you know, it, it's by it's by dealing with the reality, dealing with the truth of what something truly is. Um, and and to me, one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, they use the same music from BVS. Uh, at the beginning of that movie, uh, you remember there's this scene where Bruce's parents are being uh, buried. Um, you know, his parents are shot and they're buried. 
Um, and uh, then he falls down the well and he he learns what he calls the beautiful lie. And what we learn later is what he tells Clark, which is that the world only makes sense if you force it to. That's the beautiful lie. And I love that they use that same music here because I think they're juxtaposing the fact that Diana is telling us the beautiful truth. And the truth of the matter is about life is you can't have it all. Mm-hmm. You you cannot fight or change the truth. And only the truth can set you free. And so we can't make our own truth as Bruce was trying to do in BVS. And we have to be grounded in the truth that comports with reality. We can't create our own realities or truth because as the movie says, and it shows, nothing good is born from lies. And so to me, like having that music play in that moment as Diana is telling this to the world, you know, she's telling the world that the world is a beautiful place and you cannot have it all. And that is the truth. And the truth is is enough. The truth is beautiful. Look at what your wish is costing you. Like, you know, and I think this idea of, you know, just wanting more for more sake because we think that's going to make us happy. That's not what's going to be make us happy. And what is the truth we kind of were talking about earlier about Diana's life? She's cut herself off from the world and from love. She's kept herself separate mm-hmm. and away from community. Like she's learning that that's her truth. That the, the, and not just her truth. That is the truth of her life. Like, that's what has made her life to the point where she's willing to almost sacrifice the entire world just to get Steve back because she hasn't been living in a way that is actually living. Mm-hmm. And so I just really love that. I thought they did such a good job with um, – I read an article. They said that they had that in there as the temp music, and then they decided to keep it because, you know, the universe is connected. And they thought, well, this works so beautifully, and Zimmer did the score – so they just decided to keep in. But I think thematically it plays so beautifully because of the way that that music um, is. I mean, it was literally titled A Beautiful Lie. Um, and here what we're getting is the beautiful truth. And Diana is finally giving us the beautiful truth, which is the lie that we all think of, which is you can have it all. You know, no, you can't have it all. You have to decide what's actually important to you. And I mean, again, the fact that a major Hollywood movie is tackling that kind of issue to me um, was phenomenal. I think that they do it really well. I think it plays out really well. I think it's subtly enough done. It's it's but it's in your face enough so you can't miss it. And I like that. Yeah, that's how I felt as well. So, you know, ultimately, I feel like there's so much that you can take away from this with the the themes and life lessons. I think that it ends up for the most part being a good like family friendly movie that you could show, you know, to teach your kids about truth and lies and, you know, growing up and letting go of things that don't matter and, um you know, that like you said, like you, you have to accept at some point that you can't just have it all right, you know, and that that isn't the thing that's going to ultimately make you happy. Yeah. And I mean, it is a kind of I mean, it's so interesting how I think the 
the themes in this movie really play into very key things that we get, you know, spiritually, which is, um, in the end, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, you know, and that's really nice that this movie is playing into that. Now, I just want to juxtapose all that with saying there was one moment that stood out to me where they were just so kind of like, and show, don't tell, we talk about all the time, Christy, and the moment when yeah. she's like, I hate guns. I was like, Diana does not need to say that in a moment where she's crushing guns with her hands. Just allow her to crush guns and let it speak for itself. You do not need to tell that to the audience. Yeah. I, and that was one scene that did kind of bother me in general was just I I think that the um, whole mall scene also to me just felt a little too silly for the more serious tone you end up getting from the movie. But I get that they had to bring it back into present time somehow and, you know, show that she's kind of living in the uh, secret or whatever. But um, yeah, I think for sure you didn't need to have that piece of dialogue. I think it's definitely always more powerful to just show us what you're trying to say rather than including it in that way. And uh, I think that maybe that scene could have been done a little differently altogether. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and one of the things that I feel like they did do in that movie really well is that they subtly introduced this idea of this world is one in where people are kind of greedy you know, um, we see people overeating, you know, or, you know, carrying around massive amounts of food, you know, mall food and stuff. And it's like, those are really, that's showing me a message just by allowing me to observe it without telling it to me. Yeah. You know, and that'll connect then with the message that we kind of see of, um, of, of seeing a world in which is ready for the message that Lord is trying to give them, which is you can have it all. You can have everything you've ever wanted, you know? Uh, and so again, it, that scene, it was like, I like the scene is fun, but then they do this thing that, which they just, um, they tell you what they want you to hear. And it's like, it's always just better to just show it to me. So. And uh, I will add too, I think that they did a great job of doing the showing, not telling um, as well when they first introduce Maxwell Lord and show that his entire floor of the office is empty. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. got no employees left, but yet he still thinks that he's got this lavish office that he deserves to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Living out your, I mean, he's literally living in his own reality. Of his own creation, yeah. you know, and again, the movie's very much about you can't have that. So um, yep. what did you think of the action in the movie? You know, because we get the the battle in the mall. Um, there's everything that happens in Egypt. Um, there's also, of course, what happens at the White House. And then, you know, what we get at the radar station uh, as well. And so how did all that work for you? Did you like it or? I think the two most powerful action scenes for me were the fight with Cheetah and the radar station at the end. Um, but I thought that the uh, the battle in Egypt was pretty good. I really liked that they had um, Steve even coming in to save her a little bit because, you know, she's kind of lost some of her powers because of her wish. And also I felt like maybe that was part of um, Barbara's cost was then um, getting diana's powers from her 
maybe she's kind of sucking it from her to take them on. Um, I don't know. I, I, that may just be my head cannon, but <laughs> I like that then, you know, they're showing she gets shot and, you know, she's actually in some danger and Steve comes in and helps her and it takes more than one person this time. You know, it's not just Wonder Woman comes in and everything's easy. So I thought that that was a really good message for that. No, I think you're right. It does play in really well um, with everything that we see, and it really helps show uh, the, you know, especially with what you get there at the White House where, you know, Barbara straight up asks her, she's like, what is this costing you? She throws it back at her, you know, Mm -hmm. and we see how much it's costing Diana. It's not just her powers, but, you know, it it is her compassion for the world around her. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I thought all the action was really good in the movie. I, I loved the uh, stuff in Egypt because it reminded so much of me, uh, it was, it felt like an homage to Indiana Jones, um, you know, where she's under the truck, you know? Um, and so I thought that was great. Um, you know, I loved her, you know, trying to save the kids and that there is an extent, you know, for how far she can swing. And, and I loved that they didn't just make up, you know, the idea of the momentum, like where she's going. She can't just switch momentum, you know, and everything. Um, I thought that was all great. Um, and yeah, I mean, to me, I, I did I, the action sequence where she's fighting Cheetah was pretty cool. Um, I, I know some people have had a problem with the fact that Cheetah is able to destroy her armor. Um, because that armor was meant to keep out the entire world. But for me personally, I don't know if this makes, makes sense to you, but I rationalize that is that Cheetah asked to, to be in her second wish, something that's never been seen before. And so if she is something the world has never seen, it didn't, it didn't bother me that she could start to tear up the armor. And specifically too, because in the comics, Cheetah is on power level with Diana. I mean, she's beaten Diana's super strength. Yeah, she's very, very, very strong. So, so yeah, that would make sense to me too. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was kind of how I rationalized that to myself as well, was that she wasn't like the rest of humanity. That she now, because of her wish, had this like superhuman strength and ability with her claws and everything to be able to get in there. So, yeah. Um, and what did you think also I meant to ask, because I think we kind of glossed over it, but um, of Diana and Steve in the plane and then Diana basically flying. Yeah. Uh, so one, I, you know, uh, I thought it was really smart how one, how they do the invisible plane, uh, because, yeah. you know, obviously in, in this uh, version of Diana's history, which is also in the comics of the New 52, uh, she was the daughter of Zeus. So she's a demigod. So she that, you know, she's able to fly. She's able to do a lot of things like that. So rationalizing the idea that, you know, her father was able to make um, Themyscira disappear from the world. Uh, and the fact that, you know, like she says, too, she's been working on this for like 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And and I like she tries to hide a coffee cup and it didn't go well. <laughs> right, because she lost it, which was funny. You know, it's a, it's a funny little joke. Um, so, no, I thought that was great. And it, it makes the invisible plane not cheesy. 
you know, because obviously mm-hmm. she won't need it ever again. But it, it it made sense for the movie of them trying to escape. You know, they needed a way to get off radar. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, I just, I thought that it, it worked really well and it was just a fun wink at the camera. Um, and the fact that Diana may have always had this power to fly and it took her kind of connecting with those elemental elements, you know, of air and wind and all of those things. And again, she's a daughter of Zeus. So, um, I just thought it was a really poignant moment that, you know, it's Steve that helps her realize that she has these abilities, you know, um, and she tries them out because of Steve, you know, and so I thought that was great because it also helps us, you know, have a fun power for Diana to have later on, you know, and again, this is where it's been really nice that, you know, Snyder, um, and I got to give him credit, you know, he sets up these characters um, in his films, but he doesn't ever utilize every single one of their powers in his movies. He allows the directors that are playing with these characters to do that themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that's really cool, you know? Like, um, so we, we add one more power to Diana's, um, you know, tool belt, and I think it was it was great that we, you know, allowed her to be able to fly, but also be able to have the fun of, you know, the invisible plane and that, you know, scene with them and the plane is so beautiful. And, you know, yeah, I, I felt like all the action in this movie, I really enjoyed. Um, I will say, I do felt like they could have, you know, uh, spent some more time on all the CGI in the movie. Um, yeah, I, I wish that they had, uh, you know, but I, it never pulled me out of the movie terribly. So, um, but I just, I feel like, you know, if you're going to do a movie like Wonder Woman, you know, come on guys, get it right. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, I, I think there was just one or two places where that kind of bothered me as well. I, I think it was just especially in the fight in Egypt. I think at one point they try to show Wonder Woman like she's running up to the trucks and it looked pretty clearly like she was just yeah. running in front of a screen. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Yep, but that, otherwise, actually, that, yeah. I think that's the moment that stood out to me the most. Um, that moment right there is like, oh, oh, that's not good. You needed to find another yeah. way to do that. Um, so, yeah, I I gotta ask you. Uh, obviously, Hans Zimmer does the music uh, here for uh, Wonder Woman eighty four, and you know I already talked about the fact that you know they use uh, the the cue from BVS there that I thought worked really well. But what did you think of the score? I thought it was beautiful. I, you know, especially love all of the moments when, uh, like when she was fighting Cheetah, for example, and they bring back in her theme, um, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman's theme. I, I think that overall it's just, it works. And I, I always like Zimmer's work anyway. So <laughs> I don't think I was going to be disappointed in that. But I, I do, I did definitely want to mention again that I'm glad that they didn't lean into throwing in traditionally like realistic 80s popular music like Madonna or something like that, um, like I've seen in some other movies. So I think that even though it's set in the 80s, you didn't need to do that. I think it was great without. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I I loved it. Uh, and in all honesty, 
I think it may be the best score I've heard this year. Um, huh? you know, uh, other than the work for the Mandalorian, um, you know, this was fantastic. It's a gorgeous score. He created an incredible new theme for the Themyscirans and Themyscira and Wonder Woman that I really loved at the very beginning of the movie. I thought it was just gorgeous. Uh, it's so joyful and like, I mean, to quote a Christmas song, it's joyful and triumphant. Uh, so, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I have been so enjoying listening to it. I wish though that that cue that reuses the theme from Batman v Superman was there. I would have really liked to have had that on the soundtrack itself. Maybe they'll do like a deluxe edition or something. I don't know, which I would love, but yeah, I, Zimmer really knocked it out of the park here. He created one of the best scores, I think, of the year. So, um, and if not the best, honestly, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of any film this year, and I've seen so f- few movies this year um, that have had a better score than that. So, yeah. Um, I guess, all in all, then, um, what would you rate Wonder Woman 84? So when I really thought about it, I would say overall, I really enjoyed this movie and it meant so much more to me than I ever expected that it would um, on a deeper level. And I would go back and watch it many times over. So I really have to give it an earnest um, four out of five um, cheetahs. I guess I'm going to say, <laughs> um, because, yeah, there's just so much to unpack. And even though there are these little nitpicks we have for me, I can look past that stuff and look at the bigger picture of things that I love about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this has been something I've been really going back and forth in my mind about, because obviously, you know, I thought that there was a lot to really like in the movie, uh, and you know, we talked about all of it and, and I personally think this movie, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people talk about how this movie is a mess or doesn't really hold together or anything, but I, I feel like it could answer legitimately any challenge that anybody has about whether or not this movie holds together, um, and where they don't think it makes sense. I, I think it all works. And not only that, I had a great time uh, watching, especially the second time. The first time for me watching movies like this are always difficult because regardless of whether I want to or not, I always have so many expectations going in. Mm-hmm. And many times it takes me watching a movie a second time um, to be able to let go of those expectations and truly enjoy the film. Uh, and just for what it is, not for what I thought it was going to be or any of those kind of things. And so I think for me, I was, I, I've really come to be uh, able to, to see this movie in, in a really good light. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time with it and I would definitely be watching it again. Um, and I'm happy that I got a chance to actually watch this. You know, I, as frustrated as I am that we're, I'm not getting to see this in the theater, I'm thankful that we got the opportunity uh, to, to to see it. You know, I wish I could see it in the theater, and, and maybe I'll get that chance, you know, when um, theaters open, and maybe this will play again, you know, and I'll get a chance to see it on the big screen. I'd, I'd love that. But I, I think that there are, there are a couple things that we talked about, though, where I did think that this movie could 
have been slightly reworked a little bit to um, just help with all, like you were talking about earlier, like with uh, Barbara and her storyline mm-hmm. and that, that those elements. I think this story, maybe just a, yeah, some editing work could have helped or something. Um, so in the end, I'm going to give this uh, 3.75 out of five Steves. So, because, you know, he's not really all back. So, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, you know? Um, and, uh, if anybody wants to know on Letterboxd, you can see my ratings for all the DCEU films. And this is literally right in the middle. Yeah. But, nice. Well, uh, Chrissy, it's that time of the show where we go into recommendations. So, kind of wondering what you're going to recommend to everybody here this last week of 2020. So, it's interesting. I was thinking about it and um, I had to go with something that I guess I wouldn't so much say if I'm recommending or not recommending. Oh, I guess I'll say I'm recommending it. But um, I actually just started reading The Princess Diarist by Carrie Fisher, which was her last book. Um, came out five weeks before she passed away in 2016. And um, she's someone that I've looked up to my whole life. And, uh, you know, in spite of her flaws, and I, I'm really interested to see everything that I've heard about this book. And, um, you know, I know that even though it alludes to her, obviously, biggest role ever as Princess Leia in the name Princess Diarist, that it's supposed to be about her personal life. Um, that it's not so much a story about her playing Leia um, as it is just the the struggles and triumphs that she went through as a person. So I'm really interested to get more into it and um, interested to see if anybody else has already finished it, what you thought, um, if you want to talk about it with me. So I'm going to recommend it. Awesome. Well, I uh, am going to recommend uh, something that um, I think everybody should read. I think it's as timely as ever, and uh, I'm going to recommend you read 1984 so by George Orwell if you've never read that. So I think it's absolutely uh, an essential read for 2021 uh, and just an essential read for the times that we're in. So, um, yeah. It's uh, it is fascinating how sadly he has predicted so much of our future. So, and I hope it's not the case that that it's um, it's that way. But wow! So definitely check out uh, nineteen eighty four. So, uh, well, Christy, if uh, people will do want to catch up with you and uh, see what you've got going on outside the six hundred two club, where can they catch up with you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And when I'm not here on 602 Club with Matt, I do another show with my friend Amanda called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network, Skynet. And we basically do a short form show to talk about everything geeky under the sun um, that we want to talk about that month. So we have our next episode coming up uh, in a week or two in January and hope that you'll catch up with us there. Uh, We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Sabres and Spells. 
And uh, you could find me on most of the social media platforms out there uh, under Matt Rushing 2 So just search for me there. Uh, and if I'm on that network, you will find me. Uh, you can also find me uh, here on the network doing literary tracks as well as the orb. Uh, Larry Tracks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and then the orbs about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I do those with Chris Jones. Uh, over on the Nerd Party Network, doing two shows. One is called Owl Post. Do that with Dre Kaufman. We are walking through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And last but not least, you can find me doing aggressive negotiations where I'm talking Star Wars each and every week with John Mills, and it is so much fun. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?